Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast. This is Harry Evans here with Eric Quanstrom. And today we are here with John Selig, one of the most unique people I know in the entire sales world. I'll introduce him the way he introduces himself on LinkedIn. Half sales guy, half stand-up comic, all parental disappointment. So uh, we'll start there. And John, pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. And you nailed the intro. Good job. <laughs> I actually love the part right after all parental disappointment. I help sellers create punchlines that build pipeline. What a wonderful turn of phrase. Yeah, it's one of those things that you not think about certain things long enough and eventually they just come to you in the ether. It's, it's interesting you say that because I, it took me a long time to come up with that. And I wasn't consciously trying to, but eventually just one day, I think in the same sentence, I used punchlines in one context and then said pipelines. And then my brain just kind of pulled them together. Exactly. I don't know if you could see my fingers coming together uh, if you're listening to this on audio, but, and, and lo and behold, people, I, I ran it by a couple of people. I'm like, that's great. You should be using that. So you found it from years of telling puns and dad jokes. All of a sudden your brain just connected the word lines and, and there you have it. I resent that. I, as a stand-up comedian, try to not tell puns and dad <laughs> jokes. Uh, I chew them and that's a big word. Um, I could make a I could make a, uh, a footwear pun right now, but I won't. Uh, I, I try and as a comedian or as somebody who's done stand up for ten years, we are taught early on that puns are like the lowest form of humor as a stand up. However, in the business world, they're okay. I've learned to not discourage sales reps who go through my workshop from using them because if that's all they if they want to use them, great. But I don't teach them. So I try and teach the craft of, of real setup, punchline, and one-liner kind of jokes. That's a heck of a segue into an introduction to the conversation today, really. I have a long history with John. We worked together back from my outreach days. And the, the reason we've always gotten along is John has an interesting background. It's a mix of real experienced sales. He worked for Oracle, worked for as Oracle Consulting for a long time, which I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit, and then found his way into well, stand-up comedy amongst other things, but really consulting around the, the merger of the two. And rather than just bringing comedy and a couple of quick jokes, what you've always been able to do is get into psychology, into the understanding the brain of the people you're trying to communicate with. You do it from a sales lens, but you also do it from a lens of really sales psychology. And that's what was so interesting about having this conversation with you today. Yeah. Um, and I, I also would add that I'm helping salespeople use the lens of a standard comedian to better understand their buyers and the relevance of their buyers. I do want to clarify one thing. So what's great about being with you guys is uh, I was I was one of like the first SDR hires at Oracle. Uh, the term was business development consultants. They had they, they had already had a couple of te small teams, one in California, one in Toronto. And then I was part of a wave of hires in Toronto. Like they hired 30 more of us. And then before you know it, they were just growing and growing the SDR teams in different hubs. And it's such a it's such a, this is the early 2000s. Like this is such, it's such a integral uh, function with any revenue team these days. So I, I grew up in the enterprise SDR space. So I'm, I'm excited that you guys asked me to do this because it, it makes, uh, means we'll have some meaningful, relevant conversations, not be trying to convince um, some low level manager to sign up for a $10 a month SaaS that uh, 
I don't know, gives you stickers on demand or something like that. Um, so I, uh, I started in, as an SDR. I moved into inside sales with Oracle. I just want to correct one thing, Harry. I did not go into to move over to Oracle Consulting. I moved to an Oracle Consulting partner. So uh, totally, so not a company that sold Oracle's wares, serviced uh, customers who bought Oracle, drove some net new business for them, but we were independent of Oracle. We were a, we were a partner. Um, but I spent about nine years in that world. So I've done everything from cold calling to face-to-face -face field selling and uh, just kind of do, grew a little bit disenfranchised with that career. Not because there's anything really wrong with it. I just didn't see myself doing it for the rest of my life. And I sort of fell into the world of stand-up comedy, got very addicted to that process. And in 10 years, I've performed everywhere from dingy open mics to to festivals and to to bar shows and clubs and and ended up marrying the two because uh, sales and comedy because there's so many parallels between the two and I felt that sales reps SDRs in particular could really benefit from this lens of a comedian when approaching their buyers and crafting messaging for them. I'd love to actually juxtapose. You know, you you, you just kind of dropped on us that you were the OG. Right, like one of the OGs, if you will, oh. of, exactly of Oracle, which is as enterprisey as enterprise software can absolutely be. And getting into kind of SDR craft before it was even called SDR craft, what are your observations? Like fast forward or like move between the early two thousands and today. So when I started what I do in 2017, I really felt like I had been transported from a time machine that was in the past to a very different era. When I was in SDR, there was one way to reach customers. It's called the phone. <laughs> and not just using the phone, but there were no cell phones back then. I mean, people had them, but you weren't calling your buyers on them. You were phoning either a direct line that the company had sourced for that employee who sat at a cubicle, or you're, you're calling the switchboard and learning how to get by the gatekeepers. There is no cold email. There's no LinkedIn. There's no video messaging. There's no SMS. There's, there's none of this. There is one tool to reach your buyers, and it's the telephone. It's not even the phone. It's the telephone. And that, that's so, so when I started, I had taken a few years away from, from sales. I hadn't worked in a real sales org since Oracle in 2005 when I left them to join this Oracle partner who was essentially a startup. So we never had a big tech stack. We weren't using anything sophisticated. We're still not in an era where things like mass emails, cold emailing is part of things. It's still the phone. I left that world in 2012. And so, so much happened between 2012 and 2017 when I started working with sales teams and I had to get up to speed with all the tactics, the way the SDR role has evolved, how it's using the tech stack um, and, and the term cadence I kind of thought Cadence was a movie starring Charlie Sheen from the 1980s that no one watched. I'm like, why are we talking about Charlie Sheen in the army? Like, Tiger Blood? I don't know. Um, and everyone's using this term cadence and sequence and scalability. And I'm just like, what is going on here? Like, what happened to just like getting conversations with, with customers and knowing how to talk to them um, or prospects and knowing how to talk to them? And th that was the big, that was the big, realization was that sales has evolved so much with the advent of like mobile phones and just so much computing going on in our lives. So many business challenges had turned into business opportunities, which turned into venture capital funding, 
which turned into you got to scale on my timeline. And as a result, I need my money back in four years, go. And if you don't help me make my money back in four years, I'm not going to give you more money and maybe I might shut this down. And that just has created this like, ah, this panic in the marketplace and everyone's experimenting and there's so much noise in the marketplace. And that's really big, the big sea change from the days that I was dialing. Uh, everything has changed in, in, let's say, roughly 20 years time. Did I answer that question properly? Nailed it. Whew. So I've got a follow-up to it, which is, how has that changed the psychology of the buyers that you're going after now? Oh, my God. How long is it? How much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> uh, psychology of the buyers or the sellers? Well, um, that's two different great questions. I mean, obviously, the buyers receive sales very differently. Outbound is is changed night and day. But also the sellers uh, living in these red ocean spaces and, and the different types of selling they have to do. Uh, I guess I'll leave it to you either. Let, let's back it up then and we'll, we'll address both. I mean, sellers follow trends. So in the early 2000s, the trend was we got to start picking up the phone and making dials. And buyers react to the trends when they're getting inundated with bad phone calls. Don't get me wrong. It's not like cold calling was so great back then. People didn't know how to do it back then. But they're, you know, I'm a CFO. I'm getting five dials a day. All of a sudden, maybe five years after I started doing stuff, maybe they're getting 10 or 12 dials a day. And then as more and more fun companies are coming on board, maybe they're getting 20 dials a day. And all of a sudden, they're not answering the phone. So people go, huh, how else can we reach these guys in their email inbox? Oh, you know what? That's working. I sent them an email. They got back to me. And then before you know it, that trend is taking off. And then sales tech is coming in like, like um, uh, sequencers. And all of a sudden, it's being automated. But then they realize they're putting, a lot of people don't know how to write their own emails. And so I think buyers are always going to react to sellers' tactics. They're trying to avoid sellers. Let's not kid ourselves. Let's, let's not make ourselves out to be the heroes that we know we really are. Um, they're, they're, they want to duck, duck us. But if we manage to catch them and we offer them something of value and we can stand out, they're going to talk to us. So I think that sellers have evolved with the amount of technology and the channels that we know we can reach buyers on. So whether it's text, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's the phone, not, not the landline now, but it's the smartphone uh, or email. I mean, there's, there's four key channels that we could hit our buyers up on. There's social selling, just getting exposure by, by putting our knowledge out there on, on LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, you know, MySpace, wherever, wherever you feel it should go. Um, and I think that it's the puzzle and the nut has gotten harder to crack for sellers. And at the same time, buyers are more and more inundated with so much messaging because there's just so many startups trying so much stuff with so many, so many messages to hit these guys up. So I think, I think we're in a, uh, I think the market from both a buyer and seller perspective just a constant state of chaos and madness. <laughs> well, you know, at the risk of uh, the old comedian's lament of talking about comedy kind of kills it. I'm curious about you making that leap between what's changed in selling and going right into the belly of that beast of how do you reach buyers who don't want or are avoiding sellers and disarming them with comedy? Yeah. So let's go back to my time at Oracle. Uh, there wasn't this function called sales enablement, which we all know and love, but there, there, they existed. There was people putting together call scripts and playbooks. They didn't use this nomenclature back then, but we would get like um, a fact sheet about a particular product because Oracle's got 
62 trillion products. Um, back then they had a frat, like half of that. So still a lot of products, right? And there was a script on there. And we get some, we get, Oracle was great at training. They really train you really well, which is, I always took the amount of training that they were investing in me, um, training they were delivering to me and how they were investing in me. Really, like I, I just assume this is the way it is everywhere. And it's not. And so they're, they're, they're training you on methodology. They're training you on product. They're training you how to engage buyers. There's constant training. But I'd look at this, this product sheet that, that, that we get, and it had a little call script. And I remember like looking at a few openers that I could deliver to position, let's say, procurement software to a director of procurement or a vice president of procurement. I found it so long and mechanical and clunky and not me. And after failing with it about four times, I started to make it my own. I'm like, I have a business degree. I, can, I have two business degrees. I can paraphrase this. I can just say this a little quicker, a little more effectively. I don't have to say everything that's in there and make it my own and just condense it. Get to the point a lot quicker. Fast forward to me doing stand-up. There's this notion stand-up that, that, look, there's comedians that we all know and love and we're willing to wait two minutes for them to say something funny because we've, they've already made us laugh over several years. But if you go to a live comedy show at a bar or at an open mic, or even the guy who opens for the guy you want to see, you don't know that comedian. And when they come on stage, they have 10 to 20 seconds to be relatable to you, to be relevant to you, and to trigger an emotional reaction that gets you listening more. So this concept of, and, and those are just jokes and jokes are formulaic. Have you ever noticed that when stand comedians come out, very often they'll make a comment about who they look like. So for those of you watching or not, you know, I, some people think that I'm an actor. I'm not. I tell them, uh, no, I didn't play Bert on Sesame Street or Ross and Monica's dad on Friends. <laughs> Eric's laughing. Harry. I was going to say a, a younger Elliot Gould, but that would be dating me. No, but, but, but okay. So Elliot Gould is who I've been hearing since I'm 17 that I look like. But when I, when I started doing comedy, I would say Elliot Gould, but the audiences were younger and they didn't know who he was. So I flipped it and I, and I know that they watch Friends or, uh, and more people relate to him as Ross and Monica's dad. Right. And if, if I'm do, doing that for an older audience, I just say, I know you're wondering, how did some plastic surgeon do such an awesome job on Elliot Gould? <laughs> and. But in short, I'm showing them within the first 15, 20 seconds that I know what's on their mind and that I, I'm, I'm, I'm addressing something that's real to them. Like there, a lot of them are thinking he looks familiar. Um, and I'm just kind of flipping that on its head. Now, when we're cold calling our buyers, we can't say, hey, I look like Bert from Sesame Street and Ross and Monica's dad. Don't you know it? Because they're on the phone. They can't see our faces. However, um, if I can, can turn classic joke structure into something relevant to them that highlights something that sucks for them, which a lot of comedy does. Jerry Seinfeld, don't you hate it when? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid of. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about. These are emotions that, sales, that stand comedians use to present ideas and information to audiences, and they look to trigger those emotions. And they're doing it through humor. They're, they're highlighting painful truths that, about things that we either hate, struggle with, are nervous about, or afraid of. The odd one might talk about stuff they love. And this vehicle of like, 
a joke, which is just a one to three sentence story, let's call it, where you're presenting something relevant to your audience, and then you're kind of painting it with a twist. You're, you're, you're subverting some expectations, you're surprising them, you're, you trigger an emotion in them because it's real, and life is easier for everybody. And so if we look at cold calls and we compare them to that comedian who comes out on stage and has 15 seconds to get the audience on board, the audience isn't going to trust them if they start with some topic that doesn't make them laugh. There's no trust. There's one comedian I watch, he'll go out on stage and say, hey, who likes pro wrestling? No one applauds. Then he goes, too bad, I got five minutes of pro wrestling jokes. Starts to go down the path. I'm like, why are you, why are you sabotaging yourself in their night? They don't care. And you, it's, it's like calling up a buyer and giving them like a five-minute pitch on an ERP when they don't need an ERP. So basically, you're using humor not so much to just get them to laugh or as a joke, but you're using it to diffuse the awkwardness or the things that are on their mind when, you first, when they receive a phone call or an email from a salesperson. You're, you're doing that, but ultimately, I use humor to paint a powerful picture about what sucks for my buyer, which, it just so happens, is something I can help them with. And that then engages with their emotions, as you mentioned, and the emotions are what gets you the extra 30, 45 seconds on the phone or whatever you need to get that reaction. Is that kind of the, the general concept? Yeah. And, and look, I'm not trying to turn sales reps into comedians with Netflix specials. And I'm not even trying to like get um, our buyers rolling on the floor. If they do, great. But I'm trying to get sales reps to better connect with buyers and have easier conversations. And a joke is just connecting tissue between buyer and seller. A classic one-liner, you know, something that compares the problem they're struggling with to something completely different um, and says it in a way that's relatable is a powerful way to A, get attention, be relevant, and diffuse the situation of the cold call. So do you find that when you start that way and you get their attention that way, that it gives you license to have a different tone for the rest of a phone call or the rest of an email? For me in particular, yes, because literally I'm demonstrating that humor is a way to start conversations. So if I cold call either of you guys and I say, hey, Eric, or hey, Harry, uh, this is John Seelig. We've never spoken before. So this call is colder than the relationship between sales and marketing. <laughs> and I pause and you both laugh and I go, good, I'm glad you're laughing because I'm the guy who teaches sales reps how to roast their prospects' pain and start more conversations, my credibility is built. So I'm glad you guys laughed. If I was telling that to a CFO, that might not get the laughs because it's not that the, the, the relationship between sales and marketing is a challenge for every CRO. And that's who I, that's who I call call. They're my audience. So I'm trying to help people circumvent the need to ask for permission because if I can be relevant and get you to laugh, the permission's mine. The stage the stage will be mine. And I kind of think when they answer the phone, the stage is yours anyway. So just make it count. I think that, you know, you're accomplishing multiple goals all at the same time. Number one, you know, there's reams of evidence and we have it more every day with our organization <laughs> that most cold calls, you know, there's a, a timer literally where people are trying to drop and trying to get off that call, you know, as quick as possible until something of value emerges. And, you know, the, the value is oftentimes in the unexpected, in the reason for the call in the first place. Um, but number two, I actually be really curious to, to kind of mine a little bit deeper how you go about teaching 
and getting your, you know, the, the, the organizations that you consult with and even down to the SDRs that you help, how do they start to look at, in your case of the example you just gave, it was the difference between or the, the cold relationship that often exists between sales and marketing, right? Like an inside baseball kind of notion that if you're not prospecting into that space, you don't really, oh, you mean sales and marketing don't get along? You know, like getting in on the joke. How do you teach and coach folks to, to find those types of bits? Yeah, and the first step I would say is to not try to be funny at all. Look, as a comedian, my first job is to know my audience. So, you know, here in Montreal, we love our local humor. You go to any comedy show in Montreal, Canada, where I live, there's jokes about English and French, there's jokes about winter, there's jokes about the ongoing construction and road closures. But if you're from Atlanta and you're in town, you're not going to get those jokes. And that's, you know, at the same time as me as a comedian, if I'm telling those jokes to an audience in Atlanta, I'm going to be bombing because nothing I say matters to them. They don't know where I'm from. They don't experience these pains on a day-to-day -day basis. So the first step is who is our buyer? Who's our audience? I call I call it every time we dial someone or we send them an email, we have a micro audience. We have an audience of one. Same kind of, same way you guys are a micro audience for me on this, this podcast. I told you the joke. You both laughed. There was one of you. That's great. I connected with that one person. And the difference between sales and standup is standups deliver their messaging to an audience of people at a time, like a full audience, or in some cases an audience of four or five, um, but a group of people. Whereas as SDRs, you're dialing them one at a time. And where SDRs have an advantage is they get to practice a lot more than standups do. Stage time is like rare. It's like, you know, it's hard, it's hard to get on multiple stages a night. It's hard to get on multiple stages a week for some people. You're supposed to, but it's hard. It's competitive too. So the first step is you really got to understand who's your, who's your audience. What's going on with them? What are they trying to achieve as, as business people? What are they trying to achieve? What is their desired end state? What does success look like for them? Well, how are they measured? What's, what other problems are they struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis? And then from that basket of problems, which can you help them remove so that they can advance towards their desired end state? How can you make their life simpler and better? And as software vendors, we don't fix everything, or, or enterprise tech vendors, we don't fix everything. We address little problems or sometimes big problems. So that's step one is to really understand everything about our buyer, their stakeholders. And, but then let's talk about the problems. The problems themselves have ripple effects, right? They have business impact. There's, there's impacts to not solving a problem. There's consequences. There's risks associated with keeping things as they are. What are the ripple effects? What are the consequences of the consequences? And what can that lead to from a real world perspective? So, for example, I helped, uh, let's talk about an enterprise sales team I worked with. I worked with Canon's Managed Services Group. These guys aren't selling copiers. Large organizations are outsourcing everything to do with print to this division of Canon. Why? Because no one in a company wants to deal with print. It's the ugly redhead stepchild of business operations. IT doesn't want to deal with it because they want to work on more challenging projects. And operations doesn't want to deal with it because they want to work on more challenging stuff. But guess what? Toner needs to be changed. 
Security needs to be updated on the network. Devices need to be thrown out. Paper needs to be replenished. So Canon says, we'll deal with all of this for you across your organization, no matter how big you are and how many locations. And so the joke that these guys wrote was they wanted to highlight just there's a physical inventory issue with, with managing old devices. Like sometimes the drivers are out of date, so the toner and the, the, the devices themselves end up in a closet. And it's just like it's taking up space and it's messy. And it's so the joke these guys wrote is that closet full of toner could be good inventory management or an early sign of a hoarding disorder. <laughs> and so it's painting a picture of what can happen if you don't solve the problem. But to, to write that joke, they had to really unpack the problem and, and, and what could happen if they don't solve the problem. And what kind of visuals does that translate to? What kind of metaphorical stuff can happen in there? Break down all the words and phrases. So the journey to the jokes is where sales reps will really better understand their buyers and the relevance to the buyers and even find new ways to, to, to phrase things and to have conversations with buyers. If they don't get great jokes out of it. That's unfortunate, but it's not the end of the world because that journey to the jokes will make them better communicators with, with, with prospects ultimately. You know, you said visuals, and one thing I'm already noticing with each of the jokes that you've told or the examples you've given is that they paint a really vivid picture. Is that one of the main goals when you're trying to compose a joke is to get them to envision something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, like some of the best jokes that have come on workshops, that is the commonality is there's a, there's a visual component. There's a, you nailed it. There's a picture being painted. Um, and jokes have that ability to paint those pictures. Jokes are like mini stories. You know, we talk about storytelling in sales, but the right jokes are just condensed stories that get a laugh. So one question that I actually had when you were talking about Oracle earlier, I mean, you talked about how much comedy has helped you sell or help you give sales coaching. Did your time in sales development help you with comedy in any way? Absolutely. I, and there's, there's so many lessons I took from sales to the stage and the first one is that if you want to succeed in sales or you want to succeed in stand-up, you don't need two business degrees like I have. All you, all you really need is passion for failure. That one didn't get the big-time laughs I was expecting. That's okay. Here's the thing about jokes, guys. They're like grown-up rich kids. They don't all work. So, Eric, <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. That one landed. That one landed. <laughs> Well, you know, I got to admit, like guilty of being kind of uh, the San Francisco native from Silicon Valley culture where failure is badge of honor and, you know, quite important, actually. So passion for failure actually is, I don't know, a good thing. <laughs> so but let me unpack that. So, look, when we're cold calling in the early 2000s, you get you're lucky if you have one or two conversations a day. You're making 40 dials a day for Oracle. That's what they wanted. If you have two conversations in a day and you manage to book one of those to a meeting, I mean, that, that's, you're doing your job. So you, you are hearing no a lot, um, not just necessarily from the conversations, but you're getting a voicemail. You're getting a gatekeeper who won't let you through. You're, being, you're just being rejected a lot. And it's funny because when I started doing stand-up, people would say, you do stand-up, that's so brave. I'm like, really? Going into a bar, ordering a drink, getting on stage and telling some people some weird ideas. It's not brave. That's more stupid than anything. Um, <laughs> but people, people find it admirable because you're really putting yourself out there. But I don't think I could have done stand-up had I not been in, in, in sales development. 
I can, cause, cause when someone doesn't laugh at something, all it means is it doesn't mean this isn't funny. It's not funny right now. Yeah. And I, this is a shout out to all the call recording technologies out there, but I would use my iPhone to video record every set I ever did. And I actually enjoyed watching the bad sets more than the good ones, especially in the early days. Today, it's a little more painful. But in the early days, I used to like go, okay, two people chuckled at something. That means it got a reaction. But, you know, the rest of the audience didn't find it funny. That means there's something there. I'm going to figure out where did I go wrong in presenting this idea to them? What information did I not float them to give them enough information to process the punchline and why that's funny? So it would allow me to kind of like, I'd go back, I'd listen to it, I'd write it all on paper. And I view joke writing as a puzzle. And you have to put the right pieces of the puzzle in place so that people can accept what you're, give, what you're offering them, if that makes sense. I kind of muddled a couple of um, cliches. But, you know, I'd learn to move the pieces around within the sentences, like what words and phrases need to be positioned where. Good jokes sometimes end on the reveal. So the last word or two words in a sentence is the big thing that makes it twist, makes it, makes, makes it, flips it on its head. And sometimes I remember early on when I was doing comedy, I gave the reveal in the early part of the sentence that of the, of the punchline, like the punchline following a setup and they started to laugh and I was like angry at them. I'm like, well, I'm not finished the joke. And then I realized, Oh my God, if I put the funny part, the, the reveal on the end, I'm going to get that big laugh at the end. And while they're laughing, I can compose myself and remember what's my next joke. Like, where am I going next with this? So you're not just getting a certain reaction from these prospects. You're actually timing the reaction based on how you want that to flow, which is, I mean, that has a lot to do with sales development. And one of the things that, you know, in science, the first thing we do with every single client before we start trying to throw a bunch of meetings on the board is we try to find signal. And we call that finding signal because we're basically just looking through all the results early, the early data and saying what actually worked the exact same process that you just described except from a sales development perspective. And it's interesting to hear that exact same thing from a comedy perspective. You know, one thing I wanted to also transition over to, you've done a lot of interesting work, not only on the great side of comedy, but on the terrible side of comedy. And what I mean by that is, uh, well, there's two different things I mean by that. One is you and I have had some great conversations in the past about lessons you've learned from bad salespeople and bad comedians. Uh, sometimes they're one and the same even. And you've also you had a series of videos that at least had me cracking up behind my desk uh, for a while where you would uh, you would give some particularly horrible answers to sales leaders about the common questions that people had. And for a while, at least, I, I noticed it was getting a lot of uh, a laughs at outreach and my various colleagues. So uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on what you've learned from bad salespeople and bad comedians and, and also how you just kind of uh, approach that space in general of do you like the fact that there are so many bad ones out there? Do you thrive on that? Or are they giving us all a bad name? Well, let's start, let's start the answer by saying that sales is stand-up comedy uh, without the two-drink minimum. And stand-up comedy is sales, but with a much crappier comp plan. Um, and to be clear, like just, I just want to kind of um, clarify one thing. So I, I basically do talk quite a bit when I speak with sales teams on what can salespeople learn from really bad stand-up comedians. Um, I, I wouldn't say I talk about what can comedians 
learn from really bad salespeople, although it's probably not a bad thing to offer sales uh, comedians, but they have no money to pay. So um, I'm going to avoid that marketplace entirely. Plus, some of them don't want to learn anything new. So that's a whole different discussion for a comedy podcast, I suppose. Um, but if we look at what can, what can salespeople learn from really bad comedians, the first thing, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, is they, they make it all about them. Like, I want to talk about this. This is important to me. And again, if the audience doesn't care about what's important to you, how are they going to understand the point you're trying to make? They've never been in your shoes. They've never lived that problem. They're not going to find anything you have to offer as a comedian to be funny or relatable or relevant. So, and then, and then the second point is they don't know their audience. I mean, again, let's come back to the whole idea of like me telling jokes about Montreal, niche Montreal jokes to an audience in the Midwest. I, everyone will be looking at their phones like 30 seconds in. Uh, and at one point their faces will light up because of that blue light that kind of like hits everyone's faces. We can see that from the stage, just to be clear. So that, that's another one. The third one that I'll share with you is the beauty of good joke writing is the brevity, the word economy, the syllable economy. We, we try and like ax out every syllable that isn't needed, which means we have to rephrase and paraphrase and find new words for things. So, you know, if you're using very technical buzzwords, I mean, maybe that's just getting in the way of your, your opening line to your buyer, but I've seen too many bad comedians get on stage and talk for two minutes telling a long-winded story with no punchlines along the way. You can tell the story with punchlines inserted, but you're ultimately reeling people's attentions in, attention in every 15, 20 seconds. But if, I've, I've watched new comedians get up there and tell a long-winded story, and they, they get to the end of it, and the punchline, the big punchline comes. In their mind, it's a punchline, and people have tuned out. Again, we see, we see that their faces have lit up uh, from their phones, right? Like it's, so these are some lessons... Um, that I, I'd, I'd say you could learn from watching bad comedians. Bad comedians also kind of lack confidence. They, they don't have a good, they haven't practiced. They don't have the chops. They don't even have a handle on their own message. So these are just a few lessons that like salespeople can learn by going to an open mic night at a bar. You'll know who the good comedians are because they just, you just kind of know it. And you'll know who the, there's newbies and newbies can always get better but there's always some comedians who are around every comedy scene who really don't advance past that open mic stage. They don't get booked for anything. So, you know, you're, you do open mics, you network with the other comics, they like your material, they put you in front of a paying audience. Even if it's just a $5 bar show, there's like a little, it's like a video game. There's levels to climb and there's comedians who never advance past that open mic level. And these are the mistakes I see them making. It's funny. You know, the similarities in my mind immediately went to a place where if you listen to enough cold calls and you kind of like tune in on what becomes effective, what's really remarkable is most cold calls that are effective usually have a polarity shift where the prospect is talking more than you're talking. And when it comes time to actually, you know, fire your CTA, you know, your appointment setting, if you will, more often than not, it's as brief as, as brief can be. Yeah, okay. Tuesday at one sounds fine. Yeah, I'll take a meeting. Sure. This sounds interesting for my team. 
And it's almost like the interplay that like a comedian would be getting when you, you know, you're on the right track with a laugh, you know, you're on the right track when like, I can, I'm not going to have a member of the audience go and monologue <laughs> hecklers. But if I'm getting those laughs, I know that I'm on the right track. And it's remarkably like similar, the, the brevity of the response coming back around. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear what you said about word economy. Sorry, John. Uh, but I just was thinking back to a, actually an old stand-up routine that I saw. It may have been Bill Burr or may have been, might have been Greg Fitzsimmons, but he talks about a joke that I won't repeat on this podcast. And then he ends by saying, that's a perfect joke. And his justification for why it's a perfect joke was there's not a single word that you can remove from that joke further to make it perfect. And it was really insightful. I was a teenager when I first saw it. And I thought, is that what makes a perfect joke? So it's really interesting to hear you discuss that, but also in the context of that happens to be what makes a perfect email as well. So what, when I said to you earlier, you didn't laugh at that joke. Jokes are like grown up rich kids. They don't all work. To me, that's a perfect joke in the same context. It always gets it always gets the laugh number one, and there's the, it's it's just jokes are rhythmic also, which is where that edit comes in. You know they say delivering and timing is key, but the less words and syllables you have without detracting from the meaning and point you're trying to make, the better. Like the faster you can get to that punchline or that that key phrase, they don't all work. That that's like the you know what marries the two. There's a Venn diagram, right, uh, between jokes and grown up rich kids, and you could say all kinds of other things about both. Um, and, and, you know, all we're trying to do with both jokes and cold call openers, we're trying to get a, 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 we're trying to trigger an emotion and get a positive reaction out of our audience. Again, if you, even if you cold call someone without a joke, which again, like, let's just talk about, Hey, I, I'm with John, I'm John with Oracle. We help, uh, we help financial leaders close their books in less in 50% time. Than, than they've been doing for the last 10 years, uh, is, is that a problem for you? It's either is a problem or it's not. It either sparks a conversation or it doesn't. And again, if you can layer on that, that problem for them of closing their books on time uh, before a certain date that they need to, you could highlight that in a fun way. You're going to be different than everyone else, but you're, you're, you're going to present a real challenge in a painful way for them. A, a painful challenge in a memorable, fun way Again, you're appealing to this, this struggle of theirs. People like to laugh about their pain. I'm really curious how you teach, again, your, the companies that you consult to, like where you put the guardrails or even how you think about different channels. Because obviously the phone's different than email, is different than LinkedIn, is different than text. You know, and, and how we bring forward a joke or a one-liner or you know, address the pain in a funny way um, I'm, I'm really curious to know, like, how you think about those different mediums affecting the message. Well, so the joke is then that's a great question. Harry, I don't know if I answered your previous question, to be quite frank. I sort of was like rambling a little bit as I want to do, but I think we've moved on. So I think you uh, covered it. Okay, good enough. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for covering my ass uh, on that <laughs> one. Um, so look, the joke is just a core of a touch, I, I, another word I, I really hate, but we'll just call it that. Um, it's really wrong, by the way. Um, the joke is just kind of the core of your message. And you sort of need to package it up with traditional sales outreach tactics. So, or, or, or yeah, traditional sales outreach approaches, let's call it that. So I was taught to cold call, like, 
Uh, hey, Eric, my name is John Seelig. I'm with Oracle. We've never spoken before. And then follow it up with the reason for my call or the question. That's how I was taught to cold call. I never asked. I, maybe we were taught to ask for permission, but I never did it. But I did my job pretty well as a result. So if I was to call you up and say, hey, Eric, my name is John Seelig. I'm with Company X. And we help whatever your job title is solve this problem. Right there, I have your ear. But then if I can say, and this problem is like something because A, B, and C, I'm, I'm taking the joke on the back end and I'm bolting on my trained sales outreach approach and just changing what's with the relevancy. So that's how I would do it from a cold call perspective. That same joke, if I wanted to use it in an email format, subject lines, I don't think they should be tricky. I don't think they should trick someone into opening up an email. I would be direct. So I'd maybe put the problem I solve and then say, Eric, this I know you struggle with this problem or your, your, job, your, your job function often struggles with this problem. This problem is like what because why or some other, some other bit of humor. So just, you know, and, but then, then it comes down to what's going to be the right subject line. What's going to get them to open it up? And once they open it up and they read the joke, hopefully we get them reading a little bit more. But, you know, my theory is, and I come from this whole new school of how to write emails. I, I used to craft long-winded emails when I started doing what I'm doing. Oh, yeah. I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell was I doing? Because I had never been through this whole, I never sold in this world. But if we look at today's emails, they need to be three, four sentences. We have the joke. We have a, something that qualifies the joke in like a real-world serious way. Maybe it's like this problem is costing you is costing the average CFO X amount per year. Just whatever it is, is this a problem for you, or are you looking to are you looking to remedy this in the near future? Where is this following your list of priorities, thoughts, whatever that CTA is? I don't want to tell people what their CTA should be. I don't want to tell people what their qualifier to the joke is. But the joke can be deployed in a way that opens up the email and gets them reading more. LinkedIn connection request. We have three hundred characters. How can that joke be used to say to someone, you need to connect with me? And voicemail and video, of course, uh, can hit, I don't have to ask permission. It's like, Eric, uh, this is John Sealing, and this video message is colder than SDR's feet their first day dialing. So actually, you led right into one of the last questions that I had, which is how you've applied this kind of an approach to something unique and more modern like like LinkedIn Sales Navigator or LinkedIn in general. So we heard what you do. Can you explain a little more about how you did that? Like what's the difference in composing that message for a medium like LinkedIn? It comes down to the 300 character limit. And, and look, like, I, like I've literally told you from the beginning, the best jokes are short. Um, so the joke itself can always fit into 300 characters. I think if your jokes are more than 300 characters, they're not going to work on a cold call for sure. They might not work on an email. They might. But I mean, you, you need to get it down, not just to less than 300 characters. You have to have room for their first name. You're like, I like to sign off. Like I might look my go-to joke for years and people who've ever heard me on a podcast might even be bored of it by now, but I'd be like, Hey, Harry, uh, this connection request is like a craft beer because it's unique, refreshing, and ice cold. And that was short. And then I'd say like, I, I show, uh, sellers how to roast their prospects pain through the process of writing jokes. This isn't one. Like ironically, this isn't one. And so I use this custom, this, this, this stock 
joke and like reason for the joke to demonstrate my relevance and why they should connect. So the joke needs to be short and you need to tack on, you know, maybe that CTA or this is why we should connect or, you know, but the jokes I want to be short so that there's some other real estate to be used within that 300 characters in the LinkedIn connection request. That's awesome. Well, John, we could ask you probably a million more questions about sales and comedy uh, and how they merge together in the Venn diagram. This has been fascinating. Uh, I do want to give you a couple of minutes before we sign off. Uh, John is a fantastic consultant that helps a lot of teams do this. And I want to give you a minute to uh, plug your services, uh, tell our crowd where they can find out more about you. Oh my God, that is a, that is a welcome opportunity. Thank <laughs> you for that. I'm so shocked that, uh, that you've asked me to do that. Uh, best places to find me, LinkedIn, uh, J-O-N. Um, the H and John is both silent and invisible. So John Selig. S-E-L-I-G. I'm sure if you're reading this podcast, you can see how my name is spelled. Uh, JohnSelig.com uh, to websites about to undergo an overhaul. So check back in a month after you listen to this or, you know, I don't know. If you're listening to this six months after it's recorded and my new website's not up, shame on me. But but check back to the website because it's undergoing a bit of a rehaul, uh, uh, overhaul. Um, there's, there's three ways that I help sales teams. Uh, you know, three rough ones I can offer you guys like, full workshops where, again, it's really more about the journey of writing the jokes, understanding your buyer and unpacking your relevance. I'll show you guys how to write jokes. You do this in breakout groups and then, then I'll put together a playbook for you of humor and I'll coach you on how to use it. Uh, I can just write the jokes for you and uh, help you refresh that once a quarter. Um, it's sort of like consulting. I run a little discovery. I just go do it. Uh, and the third way I can help is if you don't want your team to go through a full workshop, I have cohort classes where a handful of uh, up to five folks from your team go through four two-hour sessions. It's an open class, so there will be some other companies there, but no more than five. In Zoom breakout groups, you'll go and accomplish all the steps you need to. I'll be around to bounce around and coach you, coach you guys. Get your feet wet and you sample this whole joke writing process. My goal is to give your team a couple of, couple of openers just coming from the minds of a handful of people. And so the idea is share the jokes with the rest of your team, get them addicted to the process. And the last thing I want to say is, Making your buyers laugh over cold calls in particular is addictive. Once you make them laugh once and you get the conversation, you are going to want to do it again. So it's in your best interest to practice, to role play, and to keep editing your jokes and keep trying to write new ways to, to make them laugh. Well, I can definitely speak highly of John's work firsthand. And I can say that you know, we've all had those coaching and training sessions with all the sales reps grumbling about it. I think this is one they definitely won't grumble about. It'll be a lot of fun. So can't recommend them highly enough. Um, and I'm really happy to have had you today. I'm I'm excited that you had me, and I'm excited, Harry, that we decided to match our brick walls uh, for this for this conversation. I'm glad we we synced up on that. And uh, Eric, I'm, I'm it's great to meet you, and I'm, I love doing this. So thank you guys for having me. You bet, our pleasure. Thanks again, John. Have a good one.